The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Full of so many bad things and, you know, wondering where people's processing of, of ideas come from. And it's just, it's a very difficult time. And we know the Bible is very clear that as the time grows closer to the Lord's return, uh, society is going to degrade. And we're seeing it, you know, over and over. I know I often say that um, throughout history, every generation has had their total belief that Christ was coming, you know. And uh, I remember my parents telling me that uh, through World War II, they just knew Hitler was the Antichrist and look at what he did to the Jews. And this was it. And here we are 70 years later. We're still going. But I think what we're seeing is a constant, gradual Uh, degrading of humanity. And uh, so that just should encourage each one of us to rest more deeply in the Lord, to find our strength in Him and in the Word of God. And as we look at discipleship, we find very clearly that God offers us very clear understanding. He gives us His Word. He gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us all the tools we need to remain strong in a very difficult time. So that needs to be on the forefront of our minds. And this morning, our text is is perfectly right there. Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now he begins this morning by saying, come to me. Perhaps one of the most important portions of scripture in all the Bible for God's people. You know, we tend to think that discipleship is is much too hard and very burdensome to maintain. That it's only for a select few who just seem to be able to rise above and, and get over it. Many have no problem with the idea that we need to accept Jesus Christ as our personal savior for salvation. But when they consider discipleship and what that may cost, it's very difficult to to hang in there. And that's very natural. That's part of the struggles of being human, being depraved sinners, saved by grace, but living in a sin-cursed world. It's, It's very normal. So we need supernatural strength. While we may initially think discipleship is the hardest thing that anyone can do, At the same time, we see that the scripture makes clear that God has provided everything we need to be strong. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. Now, this doesn't refer to mere physical weakness or to what we would call the burdens of a hard life, although that was definitely included. But chiefly, it refers to a sense of sin's burden and the need for a savior. The context of Matthew 11 makes this clear because at the beginning of the chapter, we see the rejection of Christ's uh, preaching by the Jews that were standing by, by. And then later on in Matthew 11, verse 25 through 26, Jesus says at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
You see, the little children here are those who are childlike in their self-evaluation and faith. They are the ones who recognize that they are sinners, that they need a Savior. And so as we move forward, we find then that Jesus then says, learn from me. Once we have repented and come to Christ, he goes on to offer a learning for true fulfillment. Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So when Jesus called disciples to follow him, he was comparing Christianity to a path his followers were to take, a walk that they were to walk with him going before them. And interestingly, when he challenged disciples to learn from me, he was comparing Christianity to a school in which he was both the subject matter and the teacher. And this is the school of Christ in which every believer has matriculated and which is a lifelong course that we enter into upon salvation. John 2, verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, that's interesting. Abide, the word abide means accept or act in accordance with. So any Christian who claims to be Christ's child and abiding in him ought to walk the way Christ walked. And herein lies the key to discipleship. Fulfilling the law of Christ in our own lives, that we might be used by him in this world. Now, some of the translations differ here. Some say, learn from me. Others say, learn of me. I believe the King James says, learn of me. And Jesus is both the teacher and the subject matter. But this variation exists because the Greek preposition apo means several things, including of and from. And so English translators, since there is no English word that corresponds, are forced to write one or the other, when in reality, both ideas are necessary. Learn from me and learn of me. The fundamental idea is knowing Christ himself is precisely the sense of John 17.3, which says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So what does knowing God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent really mean? What what is he saying here? Well, this is no mere intellectual knowledge of God any more than saving faith is mere intellectual assent to truth. Even in human terms, there is a difference between knowing about something and knowing something personally. I kind of the, the illustration that comes to my mind, though not a very good one, but if you've been watching the Olympics and you see the sport of curling, okay? Been watching that for years. Don't have a clue what happens. You know, someone very carefully slides this little disc down while the others are sweeping frantically in front of it. It's like, okay, <laughs> wow, you know? But now there are places in Columbus where you can actually go do it. And so you can go, experience it, understand it, and really get to know it. And that's kind of the difference of what we're talking So to take the matter of knowing God to the highest level and ask what it means to know God is obviously involves two things. We must know about God and we must experience God. All this, particularly the latter, also depends on God's willingness to reveal himself to us. 
And of course, he does by nature, through the Bible, and through the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding of what he is teaching. Further, we must understand our need for a Savior by acknowledging that we are sinners. And so it's important for us to understand what sin is. And this is why preaching that neglects the mention of sin is not true preaching. Today, unfortunately, in many churches, they avoid talking about sin because, after all, people are beat up every day. They need a place to be free from that. But in reality, you withhold the very key of what's necessary to know Christ. The second idea in the translation is learn from me. And learn from me is having Jesus as our teacher. How does Jesus teach us? Well, we can understand how he taught the disciples while he was here on earth. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Jesus came to fulfill the law, because none of us were capable of keeping the law. And so by dying on the cross and paying the price for our sins, he fulfills the law. So now he says, there's a new commandment for you, that you love one another. Well, what does this mean, love one another? Are we talking about warm fuzzies? Are we talking about a hug now and then, a high five? No. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And this is where we get into true discipleship. Because how did Jesus love his disciples? Well, right off the bat, sacrificially. He took on the form of man, the creator taking on the form of the created. He walked this earth, and for three years, he publicly walked in front of people, teaching them how to live. He spoke words straight from God the Father and uttered them to teach his disciples. He healed the blind. He made the lame walk. He raised the dead. He showed what it meant to be God and in the reality showed what you and I need to emulate in our own lives by loving and serving one another. It's it's a beautiful picture when you you look at the church. And, you know, I may preach and administrate and elders teach and, and deacons serve. And then there are people who teach adults and teach children and students. And we're all fit together in a beautiful manner. And verse 35 says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. So it's not just verbally claiming to be God's child. It's actually living the life Christ lived. And while we may look at that initially and go, how on earth is a human supposed to live like God? Well, God knew that. That's why he gave the Holy Spirit. That's why he gave the word of God to instruct us and to lead us and give us all the tools we need. So it's a wonderful picture here. And then he literally called disciples to follow him after he instructed them as they traveled about together. And most of the words that Jesus taught are the gospels that are recorded for us in the New Testament. But the question is, how does Jesus teach us now when he's in heaven and we're on earth? We don't have the advantage to have him walking by our side and leading us step by step in everything that we do. Well, I take you first of all to Romans 12.2. Romans 12.2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by testing you might prove what is the perfect will of God. Don't be conformed to the world, be transformed by the word of God. So as you and I get into the scriptures, get into the, to the word of God, even when we're tested, we have strength and stability. When you know the word of God and you make a conscious choice to follow his word, you begin to understand the joy that you have. You know, disappointments are unavoidable. Discouragement is a choice. Heard that last night as I was flipping through the dials. Charles Stanley had it, and I saw like two seconds of it, and I thought, wow, thank you, Lord. Disappointments are unavoidable, but discouragement is a choice. And when you have the word of God in your heart and the Holy Spirit leading you, when things happen, you know God is working through your lives, you have the capacity to give it to him and claim his joy. Jesus further answered in John 14, 25 through 26, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have taught you. John 16, 13, and 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So according to Jesus, the Holy Spirit would lead the disciples to first remember his teaching and then to record it so that it would be preserved in the word of God for you and I today. We have the teaching of Christ. And the Holy Spirit then takes it and guides us into truth. And what is that truth? That we love one another. So to be Christ-like involves the command to love. But not just in word, but in action to one another. And then he says, take my yoke. In calling disciples, Jesus introduced this further image to explain the relationship of the disciple to himself that he had in mind. It was the image of a yoke. A yoke is placed over the head and shoulders of a farm animal, such as an ox or a horse, that enables it to work. It emulates several important elements of this that you and I need to understand. Number one, submission. We touched on this briefly last week, but it involves the concept of an animal submitting to the master's yoke or a scholar submitting to the academic disciplines of a professor. When we come to Jesus Christ in salvation, we must understand that he is there to guide our lives. He will direct our paths to fulfillment and to bring glory to Jesus Christ that every reason, the very reason that we were created. So putting on his yoke guarantees our staying in his tracks. Let me say that again. Putting on his yoke guarantees our staying in his tracks. Submitting to the law of Christ to love as he loved will constrain us. It will change our behaviors. The New Testament exhorts us to love, and that includes not only our motives, 
but also our actions. The second word is work. The yoke placed on the farm animal enables it to work. The yoke of Christ placed on the shoulders of his followers undoubtedly has the same meaning in our lives. It means that we are hitched to his team or enlisted in his service. We are submitting to him to be available for whatever he may require of us. But because of who we're yoked to, we understand that he is the one pulling the load. That's why he says, take my yoke upon me, and talks about his burden being easy. Well, how can a burden be easy unless someone else is carrying it with him? You know, you can carry a thousand pounds if it's one inch off your shoulders. And this is what Christ is talking about, to be yoked with him, to follow him, and let, us lead, let him lead us. And number three, companionship. Uh, this is the third image of a yoke that I really like. It's another way of saying that there is also others in the school of Christ. It is possible to have a yoke with Christ and also to be yoked with fellow believers. Uh, the idea here is two animals. Now, it could also mean a one-horse open sleigh like the song tells us. But the reality of Scripture here is it's a multi-yoke where we are yoked together with Christ and with others. And I'm glad it's that way. Because the work is often hard and the hours are long. But when you're yoked together with fellow believers and everyone is following Christ and obeying his leading and submitting together, it's a beautiful picture. And that's a beautiful picture of a healthy church. And as I said earlier, we have people who do a wonderful job teaching children and students and adults we have people that go downtown and, and minister to the homeless and, and, the sh- and the shelters. We have people that are on the streets witnessing, all fitly joined together with Jesus Christ. And that is such a beautiful picture of true discipleship, as all of us submit to what Christ wants us to do. The key here that Jesus is telling us is that he's calling us to the yoke where he himself is the one in the midst of it. He is the one that is pulling the load. I'm reminded of 1 Corinthians 3.9, where he said, For we are God's fellow workers. The scripture says that we are co-laborers with Christ. You see, he hasn't called us to a life of difficulty where we're out there drudging it and doing our own. He is calling us to his yoke. He's calling to pull us along with him. And he literally calls us his fellow workers. Just imagine for a moment that you are a fellow worker with Jesus Christ. If you meditate on that, and realize the incredible opportunity he's given us, not just to be saved, but to now labor with him in his goals. That's very encouraging. 2 Corinthians 6.1 says, working together with him. It's a team effort. It's a beautiful team effort where we come together in a very wonderful way. And it doesn't just end when we get saved. Matthew 28.20 says, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So he calls us to him in salvation. Then he calls us to submit to his word and to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he calls us to be yoked together with him for the work that he is doing. And we are now co-laborers with him for as long as we are on this life. I can't think of a better purpose to live for than that. 
in the fact that he calls us to this. He never calls us to do anything that he is not right alongside us to lead the way. And that's important for you and I to understand, particularly as we struggle to get understanding and seeing what's happening in a world that we live in today where everything seems to be upside down. He is in control of all things. Matthew Henry wrote, We are yoked together and therefore must be diligent. We are yoked to submit and therefore must be humble and patient. We are yoked together with our fellow servants and therefore must keep the communion of the saints. And you know, this is why it's important that we come to church and fellowship together. Someone told me not too long ago that you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. True. But if you truly are a Christian, where do you get the training to be like Christ? If you're truly a child of God, where do you understand the fellowship of believers to encourage each other, to build into each other, to strengthen each other, to walk with each other, to pray with each other, to help understanding? That's why the church was ordained by Christ. It's the place where God's people come to learn more about who he is and how they can better please him and walk with him. It's a key thing for you and I to understand. And then he says, or what we see is a light burden. A light burden. Now, I've said that discipleship leads to immense joy. All through the scriptures, we find that when we are truly zoned in to what Christ is teaching us, there is immense joy that can get you through anything. And as I told you, and I may have mentioned it last week, I never fully, fully understood this till the last five, six months. I never fully understood what it really meant to be joyous in the midst of a struggle. When the 23rd Psalm says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. Do you realize the unbelievable confidence and joy to know that? To know that your heart and mine are secured with him forever? This life is just a stopping off point. It may seem long and hard and difficult now, but when we get to heaven probably in the 1,000th, 2,000th year, we'll be like, why did that bother me back then? Why did I worry about that little blip on the scheme? The only way to get through that is to have a heavenly mind. The only way to get an understanding of that is to have the mind of Christ. And Philippians 2 says very clearly in a command, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. One of the things that I think all of us struggle with is this reality that I'm sinner, I'm human, I'm depraved, but God wants me to have his mind. It's difficult from the human side to grasp that. But once you begin to understand through the word of God that he has laid out the tools to have his mind, when things come into your life, good or bad, things that you can't figure out, All you have to do is go to this book and ask God to reveal him. And on the authority of the promises in this book, he will reveal it. 
but you got to get in the book. You have to know the Word of God. And that seems to be the most difficult thing, to take the time to get into the Word and allow the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. That's the beautiful picture that we see here. So he gives us the example. First of all, he says, number one, why is his burden light? He is a humble master. Matthew eleven twenty nine. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's easy to approach. He's glad to be helpful. When you are struggling, he's there for you. Lowly in heart means humble. We become gentle. We become humble. And we're able to draw others to Christ. When people look at us as Christians, do they see a humble spirit? Do they see the spirit of Christ radiating of love and mercy and forgiveness? You know, one of the things that's fascinating all through Scripture when when you're talking about Jesus Christ and how he walked on the earth is how merciful he was. People constantly challenged him to be hard on sinners, and he always offered forgiveness. You know, one of my great illustrations I use quite often is the adulterous woman who they caught in a trap and brought him to Jesus. And you know the story, how he called him out, said, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone, and they all left. But what's so beautiful is standing before him was this woman who was guilty of sin. Everything she was accused of, she was guilty of. And, G- and Jesus said to her, where are your accusers? She says, I have none. And then Jesus said, I don't accuse you either. Go and sin no more. He implored her to change her life and to leave. And in this age of grace, that's exactly what Christ does. He offers humility, mercy, and forgiveness for the vilest of sinners. How do we view the world around us? How do we react to the terrible things that we see? Do we react in a human heart or a saved, glorified heart? Number two, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And this is interesting because, to my knowledge, this is the only place in all of Scripture where a yoke is light or desirable. Yokes of human masters are hard because human masters are hard. But the yoke of Jesus is an easy yoke because he is gentle and humble in heart. True, there's work to do, and a lot of it is very, very trying. But understanding that Christ is in the yoke with you pulling the weight, you can proceed with great confidence. He will not call you to a task he is not already preparing you to handle and to come with you in the task. He never calls us to do anything He's not preparing us to do, and that he is walking with us to handle it. And then we find rest for our souls, rest for our souls. Now, there are two rests found here. There is the rest given, verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
So Jesus is telling these people, look, come to me. Cast your burdens at me. Fall down before me. I will give you rest. When you take my yoke, when you follow me, when you love as I loved you, I'm, I will give you that rest. And then there is the rest found. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now, this is important here because the rest corresponds to two references that Paul mentioned in his writings. Peace with God, which is a result of justification, Romans 5.1, coming to Christ, accepting him as Savior, he gives you his rest. And then the peace of God, which is ours as we lay our concerns before him. When God calls us to a life of discipleship, he gives us all the tools necessary. And one key is great peace to get us through. I'm sure you're probably all thinking right now of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Yeah. Easier said than done, isn't it? But do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which supersedes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Notice, it's the peace of God. It's his peace. Our humanness is weak. Our hearts struggle to get above things. So it's not our peace that has to triumph. He gives us his peace. It's the peace of God. You have Christ in your heart as a born-again believer. You have his peace dwelling in your heart. And that's an amazing thing that he lays before us. And then, as if that's not enough, he says that he will put a guard on your heart. In the Greek, it means a garrison. He's putting an army around your heart to guard that peace. So when you and I struggle to find peace, we're allowing ourselves to get outside of it. We're choosing to remove ourselves from it and putting our understanding above his. Isaiah 26.3 you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Perfect peace comes from keeping our mind on him. And how do we keep our mind on him? By knowing the word of God and understanding that the Holy Spirit is guiding us and building into our hearts that strength and that purpose. What an amazing reality to know that when I surrender, he picks up the load. What a beautiful picture that is. Colossians 3, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. That three-letter word sums it up. Let. Let. You must choose to let that peace reign. That's why I love that, that uh, statement that, that Stanley made. Disappointments are unavoidable. 
Discouragement is a choice. I'm either going to choose to be discouraged or I am going to let, let, let the peace of Christ rule in my heart. There is immense joy in being a disciple when you know his peace is ruling your heart. Nothing can get you down. This is what's so beautiful about Paul's writing. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Well, Paul wrote that from prison. How can somebody be content in prison? How can somebody be content with a bad health report? How can somebody be content in a broken relationship? How can somebody be content when the bank is empty? Because his mind is stayed on thee. And that peace of God rules powerfully in the heart of his children. And then Philippians 4.9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. Well, let me bring this close to home here. The Apostle Paul, once a murderer, once persecuted the church, once dedicated his life to stamping out Christianity, now with his miraculously changed life, tells his readers, look, whatever you see me do, whatever you hear me say, Whatever you're watching in my life, do the exact same thing and the peace of God will rule your heart. How can any human being say that? Because Paul's life was hidden Christ and Christ was living through him. Now, you know, the reality is every one of us ought to be able to say that to the people around us. Every one of us who knows Christ as Savior ought to be able to say those around you, do what I do, and you'll have peace. Now, I know what you're thinking right now. Oh, man, that's not me. Well, it's not any of us in the flesh. But when the Spirit of God is ruling in your hearts, it's all of us in Him. And that is the joy of true discipleship. Discipleship is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not just a declaration of do's and don'ts and how you live and how you don't live. That's not what it is about. True discipleship is loving one another just like Christ loved you. And when you put that into practice, what people are seeing is Christ. And you're fulfilling the law of Christ in your own life and heart. And that is the powerful radiation of what Christ is trying to get through to a lost and dying world. Instead of retaliating to the evil that's in the world, reach out with a loving hand. Instead of pointing out all the flaws, show mercy. Jesus could have sat in front of everyone and gone on for hours waxing about how sinful they were. That's not why he came. He became to forgive all that sin. He came to make a way for everyone to be able to rise above it. And then he told all of us to be like him, love like he loved us, and go into a dying world and offer mercy. The greatest thing you and I can do as a church is to leave these build this building and be Christ in someone's life. 
It's that old cliche that says that only when life will soon be done, only what's done for Christ will last. To many people, you're the only scripture they're going to read. What is the gospel according to you? Discipleship is an immense privilege. Discipleship is a great joy when our hearts are surrendered to him. Jesus is all a poor, struggling, burdened soul will ever need. So why struggle any further? Why not surrender to the life he has laid out for you? Why not let him pull the load? Why not surrender and find rest beyond your wildest imagination? Why not possess the ability that when you wake up tomorrow and the bottom drops out, your joy never goes away because you know he is working in and through you to his glory. The message of true discipleship is an incredible life that God has laid out for us. Let this dwell in your hearts and trust him. And Father, we thank you this morning for the joy and the privilege of being your disciple. Lord, I know there may be some here who, who as of yet, don't have that relationship because they don't know you as their Savior. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes. I pray that you would give them clear understanding of what being a Christian is all about. That there is no works that save them. There is no effort that saves them. It's simply trusting in your finished work on Calvary. And when we know you as our personal Savior, the life you laid out before us is one that you draw us into your team to live for you and enjoy the immense peace and joy. I pray, Lord, that you will take us to new heights now, new heights of surrender, that we might see your hand through good times and bad, through easy circumstances and difficult circumstances. And that we would know ultimately that there is nothing that can take our joy unless we give it away. I pray you would be glorified in and through all of us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. God bless.